I can't say it enough. Like, just don't spend money on the young people. If you, I mean, if you have infinite money, spend it on the young people. That's great. But if you have finite amount of money, which most synagogues do, don't worry about the young people. Right? They'll come or they won't. From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, this is Trending Jewish. Bom, 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 you know what I realized? Bom, what? I used to say a Jewish podcast about everything, and we just stopped. And maybe that's apropos because rather than being all over the place, this these last like five, eight episodes have actually been about one or two things. So, well, I mean. I don't know. I just kind of assumed that you just forgot about it because I feel like we're covering. We're like, oh, I did you know, forget about it. I'm yeah, just that's what to I just assumed. Give a I justification for forgetting about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think you need to be all rabbinic about it. I think uh, <laughs> a Jewish podcast about everything. You know, it's funny. I, I I think I told you this off air, but I um I listened to an interview with uh, Jerry Seinfeld on the New Yorker. Radio Hour, who was sort of our, our our inspiration for that, you know, the show about nothing. And I learned that he really takes offense to the idea that the show was about nothing. And the whole episode they did about the show being about nothing was was kind of a way to get back at that. But he really saw it being about the little things in life. And he's like, you know, um, I think he mentioned John McPhee, the New Yorker nonfiction writer. John McPhee writes about the little things. He's this great artist, you know. I do it. It's about nothing. So it's just, I don't know if there's a, a lesson behind that, but it's like you think, you think you know something, and you you know, and take it for granted, and you find out you actually don't know it. Does this have anything to do with what we're talking about today, or I just, uh, I just sent us down a rabbit hole, and and. Uh, forced all our listeners to tune out before they get to our great guest well you know that's a that's a great question i don't know any sort of my my minds that usually has some sort of rabbinic quote and tie-in and transition um isn't working right now so um i think you're just gonna have to i think we're just gonna have to end our our rant and just go right into our guest. All right, so, so thank you, all right. everyone. So, so, so we've, um, that's all because I forgot our slogan. This, um, <laughs> we've, we've been doing a bunch of episodes and interviews this year, looking at evolving, evolving Jewish communities, um, and, and communities that are very different from the norm, uh, partially because we're wondering what, more uh, mainstream existing communities and, and especially our reconstructionist communities might might learn from these um, outliers that really seem to be attracting a lot of attention. And uh, somebody we have uh, with us today, Rabbi Shira Stutman, is is uh, really at the, at the forefront of this as the uh, senior rabbi at uh, Sixth and I, which is this uh, religious cultural phenomenon in downtown D.C. that has attracted... Uh, thousands of uh young professionals both jewish and not uh for for book talks for um for events programs and and for religious services so we're we're um, and, and other programming and uh so anyone who's looking to try and engage young professional Jews in their 20s and 30s, and you've been asking yourself and racking your brain about how to engage the next generation of Jews, this is the episode to listen to. If you listen to none of our other episodes, this is this is the one. There's there, there's a lot of... Uh... Actually, we have a lot of them. So <laughs> listen to all of them. 
are really this, important. This is a this is a good one. Our 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 producer uh, Sam Walk said said it was one of his favorites. So take that for gospel. And um, and he's going to give it five stars as a review. Yes. Um, so as I said, Rabbi Shira Stutman is the senior rabbi of Sixth and I. And uh, in that work, she supports boutique communities, including workshops for interfaith couples and those interested in joining the Jewish community. She serves as a scholar in residence for the National Women's Philanthropy Program of uh, Jewish Federations of North America. Um, she's a board member of Jews United for Justice and on the J Street Rabbinic Cabinet. She graduated from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 2007. And her bio reads that her favorite T-shirt says, this is what a real rabbi looks like. So welcome, uh, Rabbi uh, Shira Stutman, an old acquaintance of mine. You know, I'm really, I'm excited to, to see you again, to have you, to have you on, on the show. Um, I mean, I remember 10 years ago when, when I was a journalist and you were a new rabbi, I thought you were among the smartest, um, <laughs> interesting people to interview in, in, the, um, in the community. And you really... You had a mix of of um, of kind of innovative and 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 a little bit old school thinking that I thought was was really unique and and you know I'm not surprised um, you've got the recognition you have at uh, at Six and I so it's it's thrilled to I'm thrilled to talk to you again and and to to see how maybe your thinking has has evolved and changed or or hasn't and um, and you know we're just we're just happy you're here. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me. So Sixth and I is really shaking things up in the D.C. area. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Sixth and I is about and what you're doing? Yeah, great. So um, Sixth and I um, is located in downtown D.C., literally at the intersection of Sixth Street and I Street. Um, and its goal is to increase conversation and community in downtown DC. And so we do that a few different ways. First of all, we have arts and culture, book talks, concerts, podcast recordings. Um, those are all uh, secular, right? Almost all secular in nature. Although, for instance, we did have Ehud Barak here for his book tour just last week. But usually those are secular. Those bring in all different types of people from around the area. And then we have a spiritual community, which is uh, targeted towards people in their 20s and 30s. So it's sort of um, the easiest way to talk about it uh, is as a Hillel for people in their 20s and 30s. We have no children's programming here by design. So the idea is that we are a community, but for a very specific age group and a very specific stage of formation. And then people will go on to join other communities, God willing, later on in their lives. So we have about uh, 85,000 visitors a year to Six and I for all of our various programs. Um, and our religious programming, I mean, depending on how you count it, we like to say between 10 and 15,000 visits a year for our young professional programming at Six and I. As innovative as it is, there clearly are antecedents. I mean, I remember back back when I was in my early 20s, there there was the McCor Center on the upper Upper West Side, where where you could go to Shabbat dinner and and hear hear Nora Jones play in in the same week. Um, I guess yeah. I'm wondering since we're we're coming to you from uh, from the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, would 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 Mordecai Kaplan recognize Six and <laughs> I as a as a synagogue center? Is there is there any? I mean, do you see see it in that tradition at all, or or is it something totally? 
totally different related to the, the 21st century? Um, I love that question because it's actually something we think about, I think about a lot, and I've talked about uh, with other Reconstructionist colleagues. So I don't like to speak for Mordechai Kaplan. I'll leave that to Deborah Waxman. But <laughs> I, I do think in some ways this would be exactly what he would have imagined. Could he have imagined a 21st century of technological innovation and millennials and everything that we know to be true? Um, this is very much a synagogue center, and it is we don't, we don't have a swimming pool. You know, but besides that, it's very much a synagogue center and it very much um, connects the Jewish culture and tradition with American culture and tradition in a very reconstructionist way. There are other pieces about it that are very much not reconstructionist in nature, although I don't I can't speak again for Kaplan um, that I could talk about if we get into the details of the structure of Sixth and I and how it works. But in general, the idea that America has something to teach the Jews, the Jews have something to teach America. People should be allowed to plug into Judaism in all different ways from all different vantage points. Um, our <clears throat> understanding of, of what Judaism looks like is continually evolving. I mean, a lot of this is very uh, reconstructionist in nature. I guess this is this is a question that 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 faces any any community that targets a subsect. But is there? I guess there's clearly a shelf life for people involved. I mean, once. Once you know they have kids and want to go to Tat Shabbat, they have to go to they have to go somewhere else. I guess um, is that, I mean, is that part of your thinking? Are you expecting in in downtown DC there's always going to be that next group of uh, you know of millennials looking to to take the place of those who who age out? So this is you know what you are asking, and so early on in our podcast recording is really one of sorry the I'm supposed to work up to it. But. I know. I know. It's just, but this is one of the key questions. I mean, I think it, in terms of what makes Sixth and I unique, and I'm using the word unique on purpose, not in the sort of overused colloquial way we use it nowadays. Like what makes Sixth and I unique is this experiment with bringing people in, creating spiritual community, and then sending them out. And so we have a bunch of different programs that we are running and working on to really help send people out with integrity and thoughtfulness um, and love. But it is, it's a, it's a, it's a growing question for us. I mean, you know, the second half of your question was, you know, in terms of the millennials who come to D.C., the young people. I mean, the engine the, of D.C. is government. And that's not whoever is in power, God willing, that's not going anywhere. There will always be more and more young people coming to D.C. to work for the government, against the government, whatever it may be. Um, but the other thing that's changing in D.C., like many urban centers, D.C. is rapidly gentrifying in ways that are not uncomplicated for us at Sixth and I. Um, but a lot of people who came to DC and thought they were only going to be here for a few years are actually not leaving. They're not moving to the suburbs and they're also just not leaving Washington at all. Um, and so we do have a growing number of families and empty nesters um, here in DC who really would like Six and I to be more than just um, a young professional community. And it's something that we're struggling with all the time. We are the only synagogue in downtown DC. And so um, it's a question that, that's always very alive for us. You know, right now, uh, we are still very much dedicated to our core group, which are the young professionals um, in their 20s and 30s. They're not all professionals, but young people in their 20s and 30s, because we feel like that's a really specific stage and age of life. And the vast majority of synagogues you go to around the country, the young people are in their 50s. And so to have a place where, you know, services tonight will have three or 400 people and maybe 30 of them will be in their 50s. Um, it just it feels different. The energy is different and um, it, it brings in more and more young people. Um, all the time. 
So one of the things that I hear quite a bit from different synagogues is we need to bring in the young people. We need to bring in the millennials. What are traditional synagogues missing that you seem to have hit the mark on? Yeah, I wish synagogues would stop saying that. Like they, <laughs> there's like the fetishization of of young people, I think is a is like a vestigial remnant of a time when uh, we really wanted to fight intermarriage in a way that like some people are still fighting that fight, but n- not many in the same way. I think that young people are not, um, I think I wish more synagogues were focusing more on young families rather than on, you know, people in their twenties and thirties. So here's what I think they're missing. (laughs) I think synagogues need to decide whether they actually want to change. And I think a lot of times synagogues will think that they want to be, well, I mean, they actually do want to be welcoming, but they don't want to change. Um, And so what we try to do at Six and I is go to where the people are um, and, and try to understand sort of what they want from Judaism, whether it means talking about Israel-Palestine or whether it means providing uh, life cycle rituals without circum- for baby boys who are born without circumcision or are not going to be circumcised, or whether it means um, creating services that are more um, relaxed and musical. There are so many things that we do at Six and I, but more than anything else, what we are willing to do is evolve as the people evolve. And a lot of uh, synagogues are just very set in their ways. And even if their ways are progressive and they're already doing life cycle ceremonies for boys who are not being circumcised, there are other ways that they are sort of swimming in a water that they don't even recognize. And they're just not willing to sort of get outside of it. And in a way, I don't blame them. I, I go to, I like going to my old synagogue and doing things the way I've always done it. I just don't think that they should, on the one hand, expect to have a whole new generation of young people come in who are not partnered, who... Um, have different ideas about who they want to be, and on the other hand, be able to keep on doing it the way they've always been doing it with just a little um, adjustment around the edges. Also, just I'll just say one last thing, two last things. First of all, we have no membership at Six and I. It's uh, it's entirely a la carte, so that's one thing that young people tend to like better. They want to pay for a service that they want. And second of all, we just have a critical mass. Like, remember, if you're in West Orange, or if even if you're in Milwaukee, which is a big city, you just don't have a critical mass of young Jewish people. Um, And we just have that. We have tens of thousands of them here in D.C. So we're lucky in that way. Earlier in when when uh, when you were when you were just starting out in the Rabnet, one of the things you did was was um, act as a spiritual leader for kind of an emergent boutique community. And and you and I had a lot of conversations about that. And and you were you were kind of both really gung ho about breaking the mold and 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 serving, you know, meeting people where they are. But you also seem like you had real reservations about people moving away from the responsibilities that, that, you know, and expectations that come with a full community synagogue, you know, membership. I mean, has that, I'm wondering how your thoughts have have evolved on that, you know, being so successful at a, at a, at a place that, that has this radically different expectations of, of membership. Yeah. So when I was in rabbinical school, I helped to start a small havara that's still around called Kesher Shalom in Abington, um, Pennsylvania. And I did feel a little bit of, um, I had some complicated feelings because these were on the one hand, and I'm sure we talked about this a while ago, Brian, these were people who were not choosing between KI or Beth Shalom. These were people that were choosing either between nothing and a Kesher Shalom, or they were choosing maybe between like the Unitarian Church and uh, Kesher Shalom. And so 
on the one hand, we were bringing in people who, um, who otherwise would not have been served. But on the other hand, you know, there is a reason that the traditional synagogue structure has grown up the way that it has, and that people pay sizable amounts of money for services that some, some of which they use, but some of that money is going towards services they will never use. And I'm not even just talking about the, ser- the religious services they don't attend. I'm talking about um, the program for taking care of the elders and uh, Hebrew school if people don't have, don't have kids or camp scholarships, you know, for people who don't have money to pay for camp. And so I do think as more and more Jews are opting out of paying synagogue dues, and I'm here I'm talking about people because that could very well afford it, but <clears throat> just don't see it as a financial priority. I really think it's going to be uh, to the detriment of the larger Jewish community. That being said, I am also still convinced that there are other ways to earn income besides me paying the $7,000 a year that I pay for membership to my local synagogue. And I'm someone who goes almost every week. And I once realized that it still costs me like a lot of money every time I step foot through the door. And so for someone who's not going to step foot through the door, but still wants some sort of spiritual guidance, there just needs to be another answer. And one of the answers we've come up with here at Six and I is the earned income that comes from the concerts and the book talks. We don't make a lot of money because our number one goal is to actually bring people in the door, but we make some money and it does, a lot of that money goes toward helping to support our religious programs, our religious programming so that they can still be subsidized. And so we are, we are very much trying to figure it out. We're going to be experimenting with corporate sponsorship of our events, which on the one hand makes my skin crawl, right? Like the idea that Lululemon might sponsor one of our services. I mean, you know, we're very far from that, but that could, that, that could happen. But on the other hand, if it means that we can stay away from a membership model, which people don't seem that excited to, to pay anyway, I think it would be, it's a, it's a really good experiment. Um, and the one thing that I just, you know, in the back of my mind, I keep thinking as we're talking about, well, what happens if a restaurant wants to um, have a sponsorship at Six and I, but we know they don't, they're not respectful of their workers, you know, what will we do? And <clears throat> of course, hopefully what we will do is not allow that restaurant to sponsor an event, but it's going to get complicated pretty quickly. So remember that a lot of the philanthropic dollars that we take also came, you know, came, came to people in ways that were not always entirely on um, reflecting the values that the Reconstructionist tradition would want them to reflect. And that's what it means to have to take money from, from the larger world. So it's complicated. Do I think that synagogue, traditional synagogues still need to exist? A hundred percent. Do I think that the synagogues themselves have the responsibility to figure out how to bring people in? A hundred percent. It's not the people's responsibility to show up reflexively anymore. One of the things that I think about, especially when I've looked at synagogue budgets, is a lot of expenses go toward maintaining a building, for example. And um, one of the things that you've talked about doing is going out to where the people are in order to engage your core group of people. Do you think that Jewish communities now really need to be tied to a building anymore? Well, it's funny. We are very tied to our building. You know, the six and I, we do the vast majority of our programming in a building. But like, I do think synagogues, buildings make a difference, right? You want a third space. You want a home. I mean, I don't know, you know, if you think of people, kids who grew up in a synagogue, they can tell you like which bathroom they went to, to, you know, gossip about the, and they can tell you where, you know, where so-and-so. So it's like built, I do think buildings matter, just like homes matter. That being said, if your synagogue is empty, 80% of the time, then you don't need that building. And either you need to figure out how to make money off of its emptiness, or you should leave the building. Just leave it, sell it, and move to a smaller building. I just, I think that just a synagogue that is only filled for the high holidays just doesn't need the space. Partner with churches. 
um, rent it out for um, events. Um, there are just so many things that synagogues can do that they're not doing. Um, you know, we have a staff here. We have someone who does full-time rentals. We have someone who does, all, you know, a few people who do our book talks. And so I just think that partner with another synagogue, you know, I just, I won't speak for any specific community, but there are many communities where there are lots of synagogues in one small area. And if they can't figure out how to combine into be one community, which would seem to be a problem people should solve, maybe they could just have two communities in one building. It just, there's like a lot of creative ways. And one of the things, you know, Six and I, our, our founding philanthropists were all real estate people. And so they understand the importance of using real estate well. And I think that Jews just don't. Chris, as, as somebody who clearly thinks about the big pictures and the big questions facing Jewish community, I'm wondering what, what your role is at, at, at Jewish uh, Federation and how that, <laughs> how that shapes you. I, I, you know, your bio says uh, you, have, you have a gig there. So Yeah. Yeah, I still do a tremendous amount of work with the Jewish Federation system. Like, look, I believe that the Federation is something that if we didn't have it, it would need to be recreated. And, you know, I do I think that in many ways the Federation system, you know, I know it's fashionable to say it's broken. And I do think in many ways it's broken. And I know that in general, 21st century people don't give don't do federated giving, whether to the Jewish Federation or United Way or Catholic charities the way that they used to. Like, I get all of that. But um, the federation system moves a lot of money every single year. And money is really what makes the world go round, whether we like it capitalist or anti-capitalist, either way, it's like, and so the question is how can the federation system um, be um, most effective in supporting the Jewish community of the 21st century? There are a lot of people who are very connected to the federation system that believe really deeply in the Jewish community. And, and many of those people, um, disagree, uh, we disagree vehemently on what it means to sort of support the 21st century Jewish community. And there have been uh, years where I have asked that the donations I make to Federation not be dedicated to one specific area or another. But what I do believe at the end of the day, that most of the people who work in the Federation system, and by this, I mean, not just the professionals, but actually the volunteers, they want a vi vibrant Jewish community. And we might disagree on what that means, but it is very much a machloket l'shem shemayim. It's a it's a conversation and it's an argument for the sake of heaven. And so I love nothing more than to go out into the communities and uh, talk about the young people that I work with and hear about some of the challenges of the communities themselves. You know, as I said, DC is a growing Jewish community and most of the communities I go to are shrinking Jewish communities. And so there's a very different need in those communities than we might have in DC. So I have a deep love and affinity for Federation, even as we, as I, you know, very, very much disagree on a number of, a number of things. Has there been things as you're at the forefront of looking at what the evolution of Judaism is like, you're working with the next generation. Um, is there any new trends that are coming up that contradicted things that you held very close and you felt very strongly about? And if there <laughs> was, how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, every day, right? Like, so uh, the one that's coming up more and more, we do an interfaith couples workshop here at Six and I. That's incredibly uh, powerful for me, at least, to hear some of the struggles and challenges that young people are dealing with. And so, um, so for instance, the question of uh, um, having a child who's being raised actively in two faith traditions. Um, you know, I, I am evolving in that. Not that I... Um, 
not that I've become like an active supporter of, of children being raised in two faith traditions, but I do know that for many couples, that's what they want. And when I started at RRC, I was very much, oh, it'll confuse the children and it's a horrible thing and it's going to lead to the end of the Jewish people. And I guess I've just reframed that question in a way. Um, I don't think children will be confused. I, I think children take as normal what you tell them is normal. And I also no longer think that I have a right to dictate for a family and a couple what is right for them in their religious practice. It doesn't mean that I will officiate at a, at a ceremony for a child who's being actively raised in two faith traditions, but it does mean that I've moved to a place where my job is to be of service to the young people who come to Six and I, keeping my own integrity intact, but in the way that really will help them grow spiritually throughout the course of their, their young life together. I guess since you threw out officiate, I, I, I guess I just wanted to follow up and see exactly what you meant. Is that like a bar about mitzvah or you meant a, a, a wedding of a, of a family that are telling you they're going to raise their child in two-faced? What, what did you mean exactly? So like a, um, if there's a baby naming or, or a bris of a child that's also being baptized. Um, I don't do bar mitzvahs because we don't have... Well, teenagers. All right, 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 right. <laughs> it's actually it's a funny part of the job. I do a lot of weddings, but I don't I don't typically co-officiate at weddings. You know, if there's going to be two active faiths per, uh, per, uh, in the home, then it's just like it's not. They don't want me. They want someone who's you know who really embraces that in a whole different way. And um, I also don't do a lot of funerals. So um, yeah, so that's what I mean by by officiate. Mostly it's baby namings and weddings. So what is that role of the rabbi, as I just jump on Brian, <laughs> what is the role of the rabbi like now in this new evolving community? Because now you're not in, you're not taking this authoritarian role of this is what yeah. you need to do to be Jewish. And sometimes people hate that. Let me just be clear. There, they, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say like, rabbi, just tell me what to do. Just tell, like, what should I do? Um, and I love telling people what to do. So it's not you know, <laughs> a huge problem. But um, so my role is to be an educator. One of the things that I've grown to believe strongly at Six and I is one of the reasons people are walking away from Judaism is because their level, their lack of knowledge is, is, is beyond anything we could even imagine. And by we, I mean those of us who continued on in uh, Hebrew school after Bar Bat Mitzvah, or those of us who, who study Torah regularly or who attend synagogue, that there is just such a lack of knowledge. And so my role is to teach and to help people see where Judaism can be meaningful in their lives. My role is to love people no matter who they are and how they behave. I don't have to love their behavior, but I have to love them. And my role is to, is to help Judaism be the tree that people can lean against and the home that they can come back to um, no matter who they are. I'm wondering, since you primarily work with young adults, do you ever feel like your whole professional life is sort of an attempt to make, make up or overcome people's bad or uninspiring Hebrew school experiences? Oh. <laughs> Every single day. That's actually only partially true. A lot of my work is with converts and interfaith couples with a non-Jewish partner. And those are almost to a person, my favorite people, right? Because they don't have the same baggage. Some of them have the baggage about the faith tradition they grew up in. But I do, I look, I don't like to be, I don't like to blame Hebrew schools, right? I think that, do I think that Hebrew schools, like this whole, it could be better a hundred percent. Do I tell every single student that if their kid hates Hebrew schools, they should find a different Hebrew school? A hundred percent. Like all of that is true. I think that families 
um, share the burden of the responsibility. And what I say to parents all the time when I speak at these Federation events is keep your kid home from Hebrew school, but you, the parent, go out and study Torah every Wednesday night and your child will get more from hearing, oh, it's Wednesday night, that's when mom goes to study Torah than they will from five years of Hebrew school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the whole drop-off culture at Hebrew school, um, the whole like anthropological part of Hebrew school where it's like, oh, this is something that other Jews do. Other Jews celebrate Shavuot, other Jews, and but the, but the kids themselves have no connection to it as a lived practice. I mean, that's really where, so I just think that the blame can be shared all around and not just at the, not just at the Hebrew school level. Wow. That's deep. I'm I'm sort of wondering where my my kids are going to be at in in, in twenty start years. Start going to Torah but, school or um, Torah classes now. Um, we saw on YouTube that you uh, you officiated a funeral for a pet. Is, is that, that normal? Is that like was that a one time thing I mean, or is I'm that seeing like cemeteries now that for animals and things like that? How like that seems a little new. Okay. Well, so this is. This actually will let me talk about RRC in a way that expresses just one piece of my gratitude for my education there. Um, it was, I think it was the first semester I was taking Life Cycle with Linda Holtzman and she started talking about pet funerals. And it was, I was like, no. I, it was that moment that I really, I could not believe I had chosen the seminary. I could not believe these like crazy Mount Airy hippies would talk about pet. And so Linda in her way was just like, all right, you know, good luck. Um, and a few years later, I was at uh, Kesher Shalom, as I spoke about earlier, and there was a family, two parents, a mom and a dad, and the dad had just been diagnosed with lymphoma, and the mom had just been diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, and they had a, a six-year-old kid, and their beloved dog died. And they called me, and they said, we want to bury the dog's ashes in our backyard. Will you come do a pet funeral? And it was at that moment, it's funny, like I get goosebumps just thinking about it. I realized, like, yes, this was about the dog dying right? And I happen not to be an animal person. So that's a harder thing for me. But this is also about this, the sadness that this family is experiencing right now and the unfairness of what life had thrown at them in that moment with two parents, each of whom was struggling with cancer, one young kid, and then this beloved pet who had died. And I said, of course, I'll come and do a dog funeral for you. So I crafted a funeral. I'm sure I can find it somewhere. I mean, it was before the days of Google Docs, so who knows? But um, and it wasn't, a, you know, we didn't do El Malay Rachamim for this dog, right? We didn't do the Warner's Kaddish for this dog. I still, as Brian said, I am a kind of a traditionalist at heart, but we spoke about what the dog had added to the family and we spoke about the dog's personality and we spoke about the tough things the family was going through and we spoke about how they still had each other. And I think for the family, it was an incredibly healing moment. So since that time, I'd only been asked to do one more dog funeral, which I also did. And I have learned, I am still not, we have no animals in our house. We had two guinea pigs for a year and then we gave them away. It was like enough. So you didn't have to do those funerals? No. no, (laughs) I just, we're not animal people. But um, I have learned that uh, one of my biggest learnings as a rabbi, um, you know, it'll come as no surprise to you. Like I am an extrovert. I have, I have my own areas of sadness, but um, I just am around people all the time, but there's a tremendous amount of loneliness in this world. Just just unbelievable amounts of loneliness that people carry. People who are singled and even people who are partnered, there's just, and pets can really change that for a, for a human being. If you are alone or feeling like you're not understood or you're not loved the way you deserve to be loved, all those things that we try to work on in therapy, um, having a pet who loves you unconditionally 
can really just change the trajectory of your life. And I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic. And so um, now when uh, people's pets die, like, well, I'll bring it up in a class so that people can talk about their pet. You know, I send all the links to Ritual Well, which I love also, um, so that people can say the prayers they need to say. If someone says, can I light a Yortzite candle for my pet? I say, of course. If someone says, can I say Kaddish for my pet at services? I'll do, I'll do one of those rabbinics. Well, I would probably not say the Kaddish prayer, but if you want to stand up, and just like acknowledge your sadness. And if you want to say Kaddish, I'm definitely not going to like come over and stop you. So this is the evolving civilization and pets are not, they're seen differently today than they were, than they are still in America. They're seen differently than they were in other um, times and than they are in other cultures. You know, I was just actually listening to something on the news about, you know, even in divorces now where because pets were always considered property and that was divided in a divorce. And now you have joint custody of a pet yeah, all the time. So it's it's really like a, a pet is now a member of the of the family. So it's interesting oh, how that's evolved. A hundred percent. I've had pets in weddings. I've had pets at well, I had one pet at a bar mitzvah. I'm never going to do that again because that pet was more, <laughs> I just me off. Um, I, I have pets. I mean, pets are such a big part. Um, by the way, um, giving to, um, I do a lot of work talking about tzedakah with students who don't give any tzedakah. Um, and for a lot of the students, giving to animal rights organizations or animal care organizations is their doorway in. You know, even if for interesting reasons, if they're not ready to give to human organizations, um, because they see pets as so vulnerable and so alone. And so I would never say to someone, don't give to a, a pet, you know, a, a shelter. Um, but I would see it as like a, as, as one piece of a larger tzedakah puzzle. Wow. So I guess that's my, I brought this conversation to the dogs and I'll, I'll, I'll try to, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to bring it I'm back. Sorry, is, it, is it off? Is it off topic? No, no, no this is not bad. at all. This is great. Um, but it is, let me just say, I'm sorry, Brian, this is, this is a great example of, right? If you go to a, we're trying to think of things that like a more traditional, even reconstructionist synagogue might not be open to, right? Like, so like the idea of acknowledging a pet during the yurt sites, right? The, the, that might just feel to people like, no, Jews don't do that. And it is true that traditionally Jews don't do that, but it is also something that is incredibly meaningful to people. So just, yeah, sorry. No, 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 that's great. I think you you actually kind of set me up. I, I um. Oh, good. I think we touched on this earlier, but um, I didn't want to end end the call without without asking this. Um, being that most synagogues are not in, uh, you know, are not in a place like D.C. and and do not have this critical mass of young people, and and probably couldn't do what you, you know, what you do. Are there lessons that you know synagogue in West Orange, New Jersey, or or yeah. you know wherever? Are there are there lessons from Six and I that synagogues out there could, you know, could take or look to? Um, there are a few. What is I said this before, but I can't say it enough. Like, just don't spend money on the young people. If you, I mean, if you have infinite money, spend it on the young people. That's great. But if you have finite amount of money, which most synagogues do, don't worry about the young people. Right? They'll come or they won't. But um, invest in young families. That's the first piece of advice. You know, I also would say, uh, trust your clergy, trust your staff. One of the things that we don't do at Six and I that takes, and one of the things that takes us out of the sort of reconstructionist framework is we're not very lay led uh, in many ways. Um, we are very staff driven. Um, and I think that a lot of times uh, synagogues, especially synagogue boards, um, committees, 
can uh, get in the weeds in a way that is not helpful. Um, of course, you have to have the right kind of clergy member to, you know, at the synagogue. And I would say invest in your clergy. You really do want to try to find the right the right person for your community. I would say um, take risks and be ready to fail. We fail all the time at Six and I. If I if you had another if we had another hour, I would be I would actually love to tell you about all of our failures so that you can see how important it can be. I would say um, understand the zeitgeist. Whatever it is, whether you're in West Orange or Hartford, understand this, like what is actually happening in the community and what's important to people. Um, I would say don't get tied down in boundaries. You know, I think the recon movement is doing great work in terms of expanding the notion of what it means to be part of the Jewish community. But what we want is to get more people in the room and not worry so much about who is a Jew and, and who is not and who should be where. And the last thing I would say is... Um, uh, and I'm just trying to say the things that feel most countercultural, <laughs> counterintuitive. Um, I'm a huge proselytizer. I know that like that makes Jews feel a little bit queasy and it's not part of our tradition. And it's not like I'm out in the street corner with a sandwich board telling people to be Jewish. But I do think that Judaism is inherently meaningful and that conversion classes and just bringing more and more people in is a way to go. I'm interested in the, the conversion question, but I think since you teased it, is there one failure you'd, you'd, you'd want to cite that, that, that really was uh, instructive, meaningful, you learned from that you wanted to tease for us? Or Well, there, there are times when we have, um, oh gosh, now I'm like, well, we've never failed. Um, <laughs> there are times when we've had ideas to do um, classes on certain topics Certainly. And then people haven't signed up and then we just cancel them. Right. We're just like, oh, we thought this class was going to be interesting, but no one cares about it. So we're moving on. There have been times where, like, for instance, tomorrow night, we're having an amazing, I think, Shavuot program where we start at um, nine o'clock with lots and lots of food. And then we have learning and then we're doing a midnight bike ride through the city. And then we're coming back and learning some more and then doing Israeli dancing. And then we're doing a making toiletry kits for the homeless. And then we're going to go out and do yoga on the mall. And, you know, we thought that we would get easily um, 200 people for this event. Um, and it turns out that we're going to be lucky if we get to uh, 95, which is still a good number. I mean, that's not horrible, but um, that the overlap in the Venn diagram between the people who care enough about Shavuot to know that it's happening and stay up all night to do it, but are, progressive enough to go on a bike ride and do like, you know, um, Israeli dancing in the middle of the night, like the overlap is not as big as we thought it was. Um, so that's like an example of, it's not a failure. We didn't cancel the event, but I, we thought it was going to go differently than it actually did. That sounds like fun. I might have to make a trip right? down to DC. You should, it's going to be amazing. I don't know why more people aren't coming. No, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's because we didn't do a good enough job of letting people know early on that they didn't have to stay for the whole thing. They sort of thought it was like a lot. Oh, they were committed to the entire, Yeah, like you're locked in. You can't get yeah. out of this. We're going to yeah. chain you to your bike. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly, you know, and also like we have had some failures with our uh, social justice work where we've tried to do interfaith work with communities that just, um, that just didn't, um, just weren't as interested in sort of being involved with us as we were with them. We've had failures when, oh, now that you got me started, Brian, I can go on. Like, <laughs> the refugee family came, we wanted to figure out how to support them, but then we realized that um, Sixth and Iyers, because they're younger, like whereas a suburban synagogue can easily, many suburban synagogues can easily raise $15,000, you know, for their, for a refugee family. And suburban families tend to have extra furniture in their basement that no one's using. 
our young people don't have either of those things. And so we had to like readjust and now we're going to have our young people be the ones who pick up the furniture from the rich suburban families and bring it to the refugee families because our people have time, just not money. Um, so, you know, those are, that's like another example of like, we tried something, we went all in and then we were like, oh, this didn't work. Let's try to, you know, reconfigure. We also shouldn't end this on like a, these are your failures <laughs> also. We should also like keep in mind that this is an incredibly successful community model and it's great to be able to talk to you about your work to see how how excited you are and to hear about all the wonderful things that you're doing how you have this great following and how you're keeping you know young people engaged in the Jewish world it certainly speaks to me and I wish I lived a little closer to DC because Shavuot sounds like so much fun Well, you don't even have to get a hotel room if you come because you'll just be staying up all night anyway. So oh, you should think about coming to D.C. Mm. Next year, maybe. Next in next year in D.C. Okay, amazing. I like it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. Thank you very much. And then if anybody listening, if you are coming into D.C. at any time, uh, definitely check out Sixth and I. And the address is right in its name. So it's on Sixth and I S- Streets. So make sure so make sure you definitely, you know, check them out if you're coming into town and see all the great work that they're doing and be a part of that experience. Great. This was a lot of fun. I remembered how much uh, I enjoyed interviewing you. So <laughs> good, good. Well, thank you guys so much. This was really a blast. That was uh, that was a great show. Um, check, you know, tell your friends about it. Tell them to uh, look us up on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Castro. Uh, rate us, give us five stars, help people find the show. If you have ideas and you want to, you can think of people that we should talk to or topics that we should go over, definitely, you know, message us on our webpage. So we are at trendingjewish.fireside.fm. We are also on Facebook, so facebook.com slash trendingjewish. So you can definitely send us a message there. We're, we're always there. You can follow us on Facebook. And, um, you know, if you like programs like this, you like the work that we're doing here at Reconstructing Judaism, um, your support, you know, helps make these things happen. So just go to reconstructingjudaism.org slash support. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. We'll Please see you next time here on Trending Jewish. Trending Jewish.